Good morning. If you were here a couple of weeks ago while I was speaking, then maybe you remember that during the sermon we did a bit of an egg toss. Do you remember that? Anyone here for that? Well, today I brought a brick. And uh, if, you're, if you're excited to volunteer, then maybe you're in today. Uh, as Pastor Kenny and I have been talking over the course of the last week, we've been talking about the fact that so often we read people's faces to know when it is time to move on. And the challenge right now of uh, all of you are just proclaiming to me, keep going, keep going with your faces. And so the sermon may end, it may never end. Uh, We'll see how it goes today. Wasn't it great to have Kenny and his wife Cindy with us last week? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, They are astounding. We're really excited for what God is doing and the way that he is working and bringing them here. Sometime when I have a little more time, I'll tell you the whole story of how God has been at work in all of this, but we're very excited about that. When Kenny was here last week, we took a little break from our sermon series. Our sermon series is called Pictures of the Church. What is it about? What is Pictures of the Church all about? It's about looking at pictures of what the church is supposed to be in the New Testament, in the metaphors that God uses for the church. A metaphor takes something and in a non-literal way compares it to something else so that we understand more about that thing. And so if I tell you today that Pastor Kenny is a round peg in a round hole, do I mean that he is literally a peg? That he's literally a dowel? No, what do I mean? I mean, he's a great fit. If I tell you that Pastor Kenny's sermon in Prior Lake today, when he was preaching, he was on fire. Do I mean that he was literally combustible or that his words were combustible? No, what do I mean? I mean that his sermon was great. And so we use these metaphors, these pictures, in order to help us understand more about something. And in the New Testament, God does that with the church. And in the passage that we're going to look at today, he uses a number of different word pictures all woven together into a beautiful tapestry. And so I want us to look at that tapestry together in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 12. So you can click there in your device, you can look in your Bible, and let's look at 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 12 together and see if you can keep track of all of the metaphors and all of the word pictures that are used in this passage. It says, As you came to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. 
Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Now, there are all kinds of metaphors and word pictures mixed into this particular passage and all kinds of great truth. But this morning, I want to focus our attention on three of those word pictures, two that are about the church and one that is about Jesus. And I want to start with this important picture of Jesus because the passage calls him the cornerstone. Did you catch the song that we just sang before I came out here? What was that called? Right? Cornerstone. That was the name of the song because Jesus is our cornerstone. And in verse 4, we are told that he is a living stone. You have the kind of imagination that can imagine a living stone? Maybe imagine the way that a living stone walks or a living stone talks. Maybe we've got some kids out there with the kind of imagination that can imagine what a living stone is like. But you have to have imagination, don't you? Because there are no living stones. But Jesus is more than just a living stone. Right? This metaphor in which a stone is brought to life actually goes on to say he's the living cornerstone. He is that great cornerstone talked about in Isaiah chapter 28. It says, for it stands in scripture, 700 years before Jesus, Isaiah the prophet prophesied this, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him, right? Do you notice that it doesn't say it here? Shouldn't a cornerstone be it? But this prophecy is about a man, right? Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. What is a cornerstone? A cornerstone was the first stone laid in the foundation of a building. You would lay the the cornerstone and then every other stone that was a part of the foundation got laid off of that cornerstone. And so ultimately, everything about the building was built from that cornerstone. And so you needed to pick the very best stone you had to serve as the cornerstone. Because if you picked a cornerstone like the one that I picked out from out front here, that had divots in it and wasn't even, what was going to happen to your building? It was going to be uneven and crooked. Because everything went off of that cornerstone. So you wanted the very best cornerstone you could find. And the New Testament teaches us that Jesus is the perfect cornerstone. The absolute perfect cornerstone. And that there is a group of people who build their entire lives, everything about their life is built upon that cornerstone. And those people will never experience shame. But there's also a group of people who will not build their lives upon Jesus as their cornerstone. And those people will experience shame. They're talked about in verses 7 and 8 of this passage. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. For those who don't believe in Jesus Jesus is an offense, and his claims are an offense. When Jesus says, I'm the only way to the Father, 
and salvation has to go through me if you're going to know God. That is offensive to people who don't believe in Jesus and believe you can just find whatever path to God you want. When Jesus says people are sinners and in need of salvation, that's offensive to a world that says, come on, we're all pretty good people. Don't be calling us sinners. 13% of Jesus' teaching was about the eternal punishment that comes from dying in your sins. That is wildly unpopular in our culture. It is an offense to people to talk about an eternal punishment for sin. So offensive that many churches have just cut that teaching of Jesus right out. Because Jesus' teachings are an offense to those who don't believe in him. And because they are an offense, people stumble over them. They're a stumbling stone and people stumble and trip over them. Now, when we think of tripping and stumbling, we usually think of something that happens accidentally. We usually think of something that may even be funny. Anyone ever watched America's Funniest Home Videos? Right? If you have, then you have probably laughed at someone stumbling or tripping at some point. Wow, you're mean. My wife loves to tell the story of when she was a freshman in high school. And she joined the track team. It was her first year at the high school. She's still trying to fit in and, and feel like she fits in. And one day at a track workout, they're doing a bungee workout in which they hooked Erica to a bungee cord. And someone else is hooked to the bungee cord and they run out in front of you and you just stand there until that bungee cord is stretched to the maximum. And then you take off and start running and they continue to run in front of you. But because of all of that tension of the bungee cord, you practice running faster than you could ever possibly run because that bungee cord is pulling you along. And sure enough, my wife had the person run out in front of her, that bungee cord is stretched and she takes off and just a few steps in, she stumbles, she trips, and she falls flat on her face on the football field in the middle of the track. But the person in front of her doesn't know that she's gone down, and they just continue to run. And so she's getting dragged along the ground on her face in front of the entire men's track team that's stretching out right there on the infield. Maybe a painfully formative moment or something. Usually, when we think about tripping, when we think about stumbling, we think of something that's like that, accidental, and perhaps humorous. In this particular situation, the stumbling that is being talked about in 1 Peter 2, it's not accidental, and it's not humorous. Because Jesus is the way of salvation, those who don't build their lives on the cornerstone stumble, and they trip, and they fall into sin. They fall into punishment for sin. And so there is this whole group of people who reject building their lives upon Jesus as the cornerstone. He's offensive to them and they stumble over him and fall into sin and punishment. But there is a whole other group described in the passage and that's the church. And the church is made up of people who build their lives on the cornerstone. As a matter of fact, if you want to know who is it that has a genuine faith in Jesus, who is it that has been saved, who is it that is a part of the body of Christ and a part of the family that is the church, you can tell that based upon those who are building their life upon the cornerstone. 
More than looking back at whether or not there's been a past event that you can point to or a particular symbol or ritual that you've been a part of, whether or not we're a part of the family of God can best be, can best be told by the evidence, are we building our life upon the cornerstone? And if we're building our life upon the cornerstone, there's a different word picture that applies to us in verse 5. Right? What is that picture? We are living stones growing together as a spiritual house is what verse 5 says. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. The picture isn't just that you're a living stone, although again, that might be fun to imagine. The picture is that we are all living stones that are being built together into this beautiful building, into this spiritual house. And in order to understand that, we have to understand that as stones in this house, we are all being built one upon another. We are supporting each other and being supported as a part of this house. That's how the stones work together in the building of a house. We're a part of a spiritual community. Uh, It's easy for us in today's day and age, uh, filled with uh, maybe selfishness and consumerism, to think about church as a list of ministry menu items. Do they have the ministry menu items that I'd like to order? Or to think of church as a one-hour experience, and do I like the experience that I have when I go there? But the New Testament picture that we get over and over again is that the church is primarily about a group of people joined together in family relationship, pursuing Jesus together in that relationship that we are spiritual stones being built together as a house, supporting each other, which is why there are all of those one another passages, dozens of one another passages in the New Testament. Pray for each other, encourage one another, care for one another, build one another up. All of these one another passages because the picture of the church is that we are in relationship, built up on each other, caring for each other. Resting upon each other and supporting each other within the church. God's picture of the church is never a picture where we come for an hour and then don't relate with our church family until we come again the following week for an hour. The picture is that we are a family, which is what Pastor Mark's going to talk about next week, that we're living stones built together in community. And that's our great desire at Friendship Church, that we would be that kind of community with those interrelated relationships. That's what we're to understand from this picture of being living stones. By the way, do you notice that I said we're studying metaphors in the New Testament? And any of you who went through the fifth grade are right now screaming at me in your heads, aren't you? Matt, it says, like living stones. Is that a metaphor? No, what is it? It's a simile, isn't it? I apologize. Are you willing to include it as a part of our study? I hope so, because we just did it. All right. We are living stones growing in community, but the passage doesn't start there. Not only are we living stones, the verse also says, we're priests called to be holy. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. In the Old Testament, priests were set aside. They had particular rituals that they went through in order to communicate, were set aside for God's purposes. 
And in that same sense, we are set aside for the purpose of being holy and righteous people of God. That is what He has called us to. We have been saved so that we will become like Jesus, a holy and righteous people taking on His character. There was a a marvelous revelation this last week. Uh, I don't know if any of you know who Todd White is, but he is a traveling evangelist who has hundreds of thousands of followers. If the name sounds familiar but you can't quite place him, he looks like a bodybuilder and has big long dreadlocks. And he is someone who I would classify as a false teacher. Someone who presents the gospel primarily as being about come to Jesus and he will work all of your circumstances out and he will give you all of the prosperity that you're looking for. And Todd White this last week came out and said, yes, I have been a false teacher. In speaking to a conference, he said, for the last 16 years, the gospel that I have been preaching has been a false gospel and incomplete. He said, the blood of the people that I have preached to is on my hands. Can you imagine? Then he said, the gospel as I have been preaching it, that you should come to Jesus so that you can get better circumstances and a smooth life isn't the gospel. And this is where I love what he said. The gospel is that God sent his son to die in your place so that even though you're full of sin and deserve the wrath of God to be poured out on you because of Jesus taking your punishment, you are not guilty. Amen and amen. The gospel isn't that God saved you to give you an easy life, but that he saved you so that you would become, he said, like Jesus in his image. And is Todd White's repentance real? I have no idea. Absolutely no idea. Uh, nine months ago, Benny Hinn repented of his false teaching. And today you can still now sow a $1,000 seed with his ministry so that God will bless you. So I, I recognize sometimes this repentance doesn't take. And I have no idea if his repentance is real. But I absolutely love what he said here. That the gospel is about Jesus saving us so that we can become like him. So that we can be made in his image. And verses 11 and 12 talk about the fact that he has called us for a specific reason into this priesthood that is a holy priesthood. He saved us so that we will be a righteous and holy people. And that's the picture of his church. A group of people striving towards holiness, striving towards righteousness together. Uh, Verses 11 and 12 talk about why. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. He says, because you're a holy priesthood. Because this world isn't your true home and your real citizenship is in heaven, stay away from sin, verse 11, and fill your life with what is good, verse 12. Right? Stay away from sin, verse 11, fill your life with what is good, verse 12. Because you're a holy priesthood, 
you've been called to an entirely different citizenship. And we recognize that we are priests called to holiness. And verse 12 tells us it's for a specific reason. It's because we are priests called to represent God well with our lives. We've been called to live in goodness, in love, and in holiness because we represent God with our lives. Like the Old Testament priests represented God to people, we represent God to the world. And so he has called his people, his church, to be a pure people, a righteous people, so that we represent him well. If we represent something or someone, their reputation hinges on how we act. If the UPS driver comes to my house tomorrow and he backs his truck up my driveway and just smashes right through my garage door and then gets out as if nothing had happened and takes my package and just throws it right through my front window, smashing my front window, is that going to impact how I think of UPS? Yeah, it is. Yeah, it is because he's wearing the UPS uniform. He represents them. And his actions impact how I think about UPS. And in that same sense, we as the church, as the body of Christ, we wear Jesus' uniform. And we impact how people think about Jesus. I was uh, looking at a church's Facebook page to try and get some information this last week. And I saw that they had posted something about their church on Facebook, a decision that they had made. And there were dozens and dozens of comments flowing out of that post. And as I began to look at the comments, it broke my heart. People were grumbling and complaining about the decision the church had made. Then others are jumping in and fighting with those people. And now there's arguments in the comments section of the church's Facebook page back and forth as people are frustrated and angry and taking it out on each other and writing in all caps, which I I guess means you're yelling. All these kinds of things back and forth. And it isn't just that they represent themselves or they represent that particular church. Right? What's happening to Jesus' name in the midst of all of this? As people grumble and complain and argue with each other, right? we represent Jesus. We wear his uniform. On the positive side of this, I was talking to a guy a few weeks ago who goes to our church, and he was telling me that he and his family went through a particularly rough patch a few years ago. And while their family was going through that rough patch a few years ago, people from this body stepped in and began to love them so very well. They cared for them. They made financial donations to them. They came over to the house and helped with everything that needed to get done during that time. And as he's telling me this, he's saying that my my family, who are all non-believers, watched the church do this. And this group of people who didn't have any openness whatsoever to the message of Jesus or the gospel suddenly were open to hear a little bit about it because they saw the church representing Jesus well, wearing the uniform well. And that's God's call to us as a church. What does it mean that we're priests? Part of what it means is that we are called to represent him. And God calls us to represent him well in holiness and righteousness and love and care. We are to be those people. We're also called to be priests who sacrifice our lives to God. 
right, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Can we all agree, I hope, that we don't make animal sacrifices to God anymore? Right? That, that's the Old Testament priest's job. But the New Testament is quite clear that while we don't make animal sacrifices, we do sacrifice to God with our lives, with our bodies, with our actions. Romans chapter 12, verse 1 says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. And the picture here is of us crawling up on the altar, giving ourselves, our bodies, and every part of our life over to God as a sacrifice to Him. Because that's the New Testament call. In the Old Testament, if I had sheep... One of those sheep may be better than all of the other sheep. And I had to make a choice. Am I going to keep that best sheep for myself? Or am I going to offer that very best sheep in sacrifice to God? God says real worship is when you offer that very best sheep. Because that's an expression of sacrificial love. You are giving to another instead of keeping for yourself. We recognize that in our daily lives. If my wife and I want to go out to lunch today, and she wants to go to Chipotle, but, but I don't particularly want to go to Chipotle. And I want to go to Zopa Cucina over here, and she doesn't particularly want to go to Zopa. Right, what do we do? Well, we could literally lunch at separate institutions, right? We could, we could go to lunch at different restaurants. Or we could try and find a third restaurant that serves as a compromise. Maybe we'll go to Chili's. Or, as her husband, I could in love say, I don't want to go to Chipotle, but I recognize she really does want to go. And I could sacrifice what I want for her. And we recognize that that is the greatest act of love of the options that I have listed when I give up self and my desires for the sake of her and her desires. And God says the ultimate act of worship, the greatest expression of love that you can give to me is when you have a want, your flesh has a desire, and you recognize that I have called you to a different desire and I want something else And you choose my want and my desire over your want and your desire. We tend to think of worship as being about singing, or we think of worship as being about praying, and it is those things. But the greatest act of worship that we can make is when we recognize that God wants something and our flesh wants something else, and we choose what God wants over what we want. That is true spiritual worship where we offer ourselves on the altar before him. And that's God's call to us as priests. We are to offer our lives as living sacrifices before him. Now the final point that I want to make that flows out of this picture of us being priests is this. We're priests who are chosen to brag about God. We're priests who are chosen to brag about God. When I was a freshman in high school... I went to open gym on a Tuesday night at our high school. I played on the freshman basketball team. And there were people there from all of the different levels of basketball in the high school there for that open gym. And we started the evening by two people 
picking teams. And one of the people that was picking a team was the senior captain of the basketball team. And he picked me to be on his team. I didn't know he knew my name, but he called me by name and he put me on his team. I was on cloud nine. I got picked by the senior captain of the basketball team to be on his team. Now you'll notice that I'm not telling you where in the order of picks he picked me, right? But, but that doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if I was last. He picked me to be on his team. And I was very, very excited about that because I thought he was a big deal. That, that's kind of silly, right? When we compare it to being picked by the God of the universe to be a part of his family and his team. That's a much bigger deal. Can we all agree on that? A much, much bigger deal. And this passage says you are a chosen race, royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. God says you're a part of my chosen team, a part of my family you, you are a part of my possession. I am, you are in the circle that is my circle. And we've been chosen for a reason, so that we will proclaim his excellency, so that we'll brag about God all day long. That's why we've been chosen. We are his team of braggers, bragging about God in absolutely everything that we do. And there's something natural about that. When somebody does something great for us, when somebody shows tremendous generosity towards us. There's something natural about bragging about that, isn't there? Um, years ago, I knew a guy named Dave who did campus ministry. And Dave was about to leave campus ministry because he'd been trying to raise his support for a few years and it wasn't working. And one day as he neared the end of his ministry career, a man took him to lunch and he said, Dave, I, I want you to know I believe in your ministry and I believe in you and I want to become a supporter on your team. I want to support you and your ministry for $3,000 per month. Yeah, that's right. $3,000 per month. Dave literally went from 50% supported to 100% supported in a lunch. Now, I met Dave on four different occasions. And on every one of those four occasions, I was either directly told by Dave or heard him overtell someone else about this amazing, generous giver who had given to him when it looked like his ministry career was over and had ultimately brought him to a place where he was fully supported. He loved to tell people about this incredibly generous man. Because when someone is that good to us, when someone is that generous, it's natural that we brag about them. And the way that God has been generous and good with us goes far beyond that kind of financial contribution. It says, God's taken us out of darkness and into light. Not because we deserved it. The passage says, it's all based on his what? His mercy. I didn't deserve it, but he did it. In his mercy, he saved me out of darkness and into light and now what are we? We are a collection of priests who represent him and brag about him everywhere we go. 
in our workplace, at school, in our neighborhood, wherever we are, we are bragging about God and his goodness and his generosity. What does it mean that we're a priesthood? It means that we're a collection of people called to brag about God everywhere we go and in everything that we do. As we look at this passage and we look at Jesus the cornerstone, and whether or not we've built our lives upon him so that we are a part of that spiritual house, so that we are a part of that holy priesthood, the natural question is, have you built your life on Jesus as the cornerstone? Right? Have you built your life on Jesus as the cornerstone so that you're a part of that holy priesthood? So that you're a part of that amazing spiritual house that God is building? God calls us to build our lives upon him as a cornerstone and that always starts on a particular day when someone chooses to place their trust in Jesus for the first time. Is this that day in your life where you have never placed your faith and your trust in Jesus and you say, I want to do that today. I want to build my life upon Jesus as my cornerstone. If that's you today, let me encourage you to cry out to him. I'm going to give us a moment of silence here in just a second, and I just encourage you to cry out to Jesus. Lord, I place my faith in you, and I place my trust in you, and I want my life to be built upon you as my cornerstone. If you have placed your faith in Jesus, if you are building your life upon him as your cornerstone, then we have an opportunity now to participate in the Lord's Supper where we celebrate that. We celebrate the great mercy that he has shown to us and the way that he has saved us out of darkness and into light because Jesus broke his body. He shed his blood on our behalf. And so I want to encourage you to take those elements out. And we're going to have a moment of silence right now where you contemplate, Jesus, where am I with you? Is today the day I need to place my trust and my faith in you? Build my life upon the cornerstone? Or maybe, maybe during this time of silence you recognize you, you have placed your life, life in Jesus as your cornerstone and you are just giving him thanks for what he is doing in you as we prepare for the Lord's Supper together. Take a moment of silence with Jesus.